being good with other people, being good to other people, helping foster an environment where other people can excel and grow and feel engaged is probably one of the highest leverage things that you can do as a product manager. If your goal at the end of the day as a PM is to create the biggest impact, whether that's launching new features, driving metrics, entering new markets, etc. Your ability to do that is largely tied to the number of people who believe in that mission, who are excited about doing that. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Katie Kuffel and I'm joined by Brett Novak, Liquid and Grit CEO. And on this episode, we speak with Alden Siebold. Alden started at Zynga as an associate producer before being promoted to a lead product manager for the Zynga poker team after just five months. After leaving in 2014, he co-founded Infuse, a business that works to provide solutions for payment processing services and the healthcare industry. Alden now works at Blend as the product lead for the consumer banking team and strives to facilitate lending practices for consumers by making the process simpler and more accessible. We discuss the tools Alden utilized to facilitate his success, the importance of identifying your comparative advantage to set you apart from the pack, how balancing objectivity and empathy can establish effective communication and empower a team to find solutions, and much more on this episode of Creators at Work. Great to be here. <laughs> so excited to have you here, man. And I am really pumped to talk about something that I found to be the most difficult and under-focused, under-developed aspect of product management, which is the human side. And in general, in life, it's been a philosophy of mine recently to say things like there are spreadsheets and there are people. And the spreadsheet side, man, that that side is easy compared to the people side. I mean, funnels and estimates and OKRs and quarterly, all that stuff, man. If 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 you could run a business with just Excel, that would that would make things a lot easier. But the people side, so complicated, so difficult. And really, when you were there at Singa and I was there at Singa, it wasn't something that was, I would say, really fostered as much as the analytics side. But you managed to be somebody who had a knack for the people side that I always admired, how you got to be that way and some of the techniques that you used and some of the stuff that you do now because you've been in product management for a long time now. So I'll leave it up to you, but I can just remember one quick story. At Zynga, we used to have pods where you would have a product manager who had a certain amount of devs and they switched that up a few different times. But if you didn't fill your devs, God forbid you didn't, there'd be these PMs lurking around outside your scrum and Alden was always one of those PMs. He'd be lurking around the scrum and he was connected to all the devs. And I would be watching out for Alden like a hawk. I'd be like, oh, Alden's near my devs, dude. Why is he why is he having lunch with some of those devs? And if a day if a day or two was open, man, you better believe Alden would be in there adding his one, two, you know, two day quick hit. Like, oh, I just, I just, I just snuck this in. Dev was, wasn't busy, you know, and those little things, man, you got them all in and everyone liked you. I mean, I probably would do that and there would be a couple casualties in terms of my, <laughs> my relationships, but you would get in there, do it and make it happen without having any of that, any to worry about that stuff. So. Um, Look, Brett, it's, it's not my fault that you didn't fill your scrum team's plate. <laughs> So, I mean, I'm curious, was that something that you feel like, well, A, is that something you think you're good at? I mean, can we, 
Do you want to? Sure. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, 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 I've invested in it a lot. And if, if your goal at the end of the day as a PM is to create the biggest impact, whether that's launching new features, driving metrics, entering new markets, et cetera, your ability to do that is largely tied to the number of people who believe in that mission, who are excited about doing that and can connect the dots between their role, the larger picture and feel excited about. It. So yeah, it, it, it's something that I, I think I just realized along the way. Yeah, I mean, you know, every tech company, regardless of what size you are, is strapped for resources. You know, wherever you are, your your impact is going to be constrained by the number of people that you have working on something. And not just that, people who are excited to work on stuff are going to produce a lot more and produce better stuff than people who are less engaged. So it became apparent to me pretty early on that to you know, be the best PM on the team, that was always that was always my job, my, always my goal, was going to be to figure out how I could get the most people, um, you know, and working on the best features. So let's let's also set the scene here because I've, I've listened to some of the other podcasts with some of the other Zynga folks. So I'm coming into Zynga straight out of undergrad and, and I'm coming from a non-target school with a non-technical degree. I didn't start in product management. I start as an associate producer, really doing low level stuff. I mean, tactically what it meant was when I joined, our general manager had lost his admin and I was like ordering lunches and scheduling offsites and stuff. And the only goal that I had in mind was I was like, I'm going to be the best at whatever I do in whatever role that I have. And I'm going to I'm going to create an amazing career out of out of what I have here. You know, so bust my ass, bust my ass and, and get a break to join the product management team after a, a few months. And that was a, a whole funny story in and of itself. But once I got in there, you know, I was surrounded by a bunch of the really sharp people that you've you've already interviewed on this podcast. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like I'm way in over my head. I don't know what I'm doing in product management. Um, and it's clear that the people who were celebrated and rewarded were the people who drove the biggest numbers in a given quarter or a given year. Okay, I'm in, I don't know anything, but I'm anchoring to this. You know, how do I drive the biggest results? And so from there, it was just, you know, kind of decomposing that goal into its component parts of, well, you know, if it's growth, all the levers and growth channels, et cetera. But then so much of it was also, you know, who do you have working on your team? Are they excited about working on your team? Are they excited about working on these features? So, yeah, I mean, there's no substitute for identifying the right problems, being really rigorous and, you know, hypotheses and testing, et cetera. Um, but just so much, you know, arguably the more important half of that equation is, do you have great people who are excited to work on stuff? So I think that that's what, you know, it, it probably clicked for me a year into being a PM that that was important. Now, can't say that I was good at it from the get-go. In fact, I'm, I'm sure I was pretty terrible. And that's at least kind of how it started. You, though, had a couple of things that I saw. I mean, you tactically speaking, you really knew a lot about the people that you worked with, their names, their wives' names, their dogs' names, their kids' names. I mean, you really got to know them and it wasn't a, it wasn't fake. It was real. And I also felt like you also were very empathetic. You you had a ability to understand them emotionally, where they were coming from and things like that. And I don't know if you maybe weren't transparent or maybe you just didn't feel some of the things I felt. I'm, I'm a very transparent person, but I'm also 
I think a little bit more emotional than you are in, in at least at work. And the funny story that kind of kicks all of this off is one of the first tasks that I had as an associate producer was, it was like updating something on a website. I can't remember what the task was. This was literally like, you know, I'd been ordering like printer toner. So, you know, I'm going to like, I'm going to jump at anything that I, any opportunity I get. And I remember some guy, I don't even remember this guy's name, some different team was just totally being a pain in the ass to me. And, you know, we were going back and forth on, on Skype IMing. And he said something that just totally ticked me off. And I, I, I told him, you know, shut the fuck up. And you typed I, it. I typed it to him. Oh, wow. And, you know, I, I was still reliant on this guy for like pushing my thing live. And, you know, the, the conversation just ends at this point. And I'm like, all right, well, that was terrible. And, you know, I took a step back. I was like, wow, you know, I was, I was really emotional, clearly cared a lot about this. Um, but, you know, this, this person is a person on the other end of the line. And in a transactional way, I relied on him to actually get this thing done. But more than that, you know, I kind of took a step back and I was like, I'm one month at this job. There's a good chance that I run into this guy a ton in the future. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I quickly reacted. I was like, oh, this is terrible. I walked across the street, went to Whole Foods, grabbed a 12 pack, walked over to his desk and, you know, apologized in person. I was like, I'm a total idiot. I way overreacted. I let the mo my emotions get the best of me. Super sorry. You know, there's, there's no excuse for it. And he so appreciated me owning up to my mistake, going up to him uh, in person and, you know, things obviously turned out fine, but it was, you know, an example like that, where it just, the more I reflected on it after the event, I was like the, the people that I'm surrounded with on a daily basis, I'm going to be working with these people you know, day in, day out for, you know, for years. And, you know, they're not just as, you know, as colleagues, but, you know, these are people in their own right. And I'm going to see them more than I'm going to see anybody else in my life. And they're going to see me probably more than they're going to see their spouse. So I think just from that aspect, A, that early story or that early incident, you know, made it really clear to me really quickly, um, you know, the, <laughs> the downside of, of treating people poorly in the office, but then also made me start to think of people want to be excited and, and have fun at work and get to know other people and feel like when they're coming in, you know, they're, they're seeing their buddies or they're seeing other people on a high performing sports team. So, you know, how could I invest in, in creating uh, a culture around that? And I remember you telling me at one point, you're like, Alden, I know that, you know, everybody's first name, last name, spouse's name and dog's name. And I was like, Haha, no way. And I looked around the poker studio and I was like, I actually think that that's true. I think that I can name everybody in this room. If they have a significant other, I think I can name all of their significant others. I could probably tell you which, you know, who in here has a, has a pet or not. Look, I genuinely enjoy being around people. I want to make sure that the message that comes out of this is like, it's not transactional. If you treat it as transactional, it'll come across as transactional and you won't get any benefit from it. I genuinely like being around people and I think people want, people want to get more out of work other than just, you know, sitting at a computer and, you know, crushing code or crushing spreadsheets. Totally agree. And that, that was something I learned actually my first real job. I worked for Pete Parsons, who was CEO of Bungie Studios. I totally lucked into this position at the startup. He, he broke off of Bungie Studios and he started this company called Fireball. And we were in the back office of this real estate company. I mean, literally we faced a cement wall and we'd have the lights off and we had six people in a tiny little room and he didn't even sit at a desk. He just sat at his 
little like MacBook and he would just be chatting with like seven people at the same time. I mean, this dude was just all over the place and he, he had the best devs. He pulled the best devs from Bungie, left Bungie to join the startup. And I was always thinking in the beginning, how did this guy pull all these super talented people away from Bungie Studios? And he's kind of a scatterbrain. He can't code. He can't, he can't do art. And I was going to work and he was so freaking fun every day, every single day he brought it. And I realized, wow, if you can do that, if you have the discipline to just show up every day and be high energy fun, it is such a big difference. Cause you're right. When you get to these top notch companies like Zynga's and whatever, like list the top ones in tech, these devs, these talented devs, they can go anywhere. They can swap around. They're so valuable at the end of the day, they can go wherever they want. Right. But if you can bring fun and energy or a feeling of, I mean, almost like a camaraderie with your with your teammates, and you can bring that to the table. It's incredible how valuable that can be because they're going to get paid. They're going to get paid no matter what. I think to your point, I mean, you know, part of it is definitely in creating a, a fun workplace, um, but bringing it and and modeling you know passion for what you're doing and hard work is also so crucial i mean people that work at the top companies to your point they have carte blanche on the companies that they could work for they could go and, and grab another a high profile tech job tomorrow they want to work someplace because they feel like they're surrounded by other really bright and really driven people and it's so important to model that as well so yeah i mean coming into work excited coming into work prepared um, and that preparedness, I think, is also such a crucial signal to your team that you really care about them. I did the work. I did the legwork to, to ensure that you have all of the information that you need to be successful. I'm taking bullets out there and shielding you from a whole bunch of other crap so that all of you can focus on the things that are most important. You know, part of it is saying, but but far more important is like actually doing it. Them seeing that you are investing in the team and their success there. And then I think another crucial ingredient is just being really candid and transparent. And then this was a tough skill to learn as well of admitting that you're wrong or admitting that you don't have all the answers and being comfortable telling people that. Also learned this one the hard way of you know, new PM, I feel like I'm supposed to know everything. And, you know, you get to you know, the point where you're supposed to be delivering some, you know, some analysis and you, you, that that point you're like, I actually don't know, or, you know, or, you know, I've got, a, you're showing up for a spec review and you're actually, I, you know, I wasn't able to get X, Y, or Z done. You know, those are the moments where people are like, dude, you could have told us like any time before we would have helped you. And I think creating a culture where people can speak candidly about what's working and what's not working, both as an opportunity to jump in and help people who you know might, might not have all the answers or who need an extra hand, but also just to show that like having all of the answers or having everything buttoned up is not the goal here. The goal is to create the highest performing team. And in order to do that, it requires really great communication and candid communication and people coming together. So yeah, yes, you definitely have to you know invest in people and get to know them, but also model the behavior that you want in terms of your drive and passion and also creating an environment that's candid and and transparent, even if you know you think that it's going to make you look less buttoned up than you are, that's what your team wants. Couldn't agree more. And I feel like this is a mistake that some junior PMs make: is the idea that they're supposed to have the answer to everything. They're supposed to be the, the answer point person. And I used to tell PMs I trained: either you have a data backed answer, or you say I don't know, and I'll get back to you. 
And I totally agree. I feel like that builds so much more rapport than the, I have the answer to everything person. And it's like, you don't dude. nobody believes you, you know, (laughs) that's true both for your immediate team, but also for, you know, for executives or anybody else, you know, outside of your immediate sphere of influence. I, I mean, I remember this in, you know, one of my first product reviews thinking if some exec asks me a tough question, I don't know the answer feel like I need to come up with the answer on the spot, you know, proceed to get raked over the coals, Um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, okay, well, that didn't work, you know, debriefing probably with you and Michael Caine and some others, um, you know, Caine saying perfectly acceptable answer is saying, I don't know, good question, I'll get back to you. And I can't tell you, yeah, I mean, just how valuable that has been in terms of both creating sanity for yourself, as well as frankly, creating legitimacy with, you know, with an executive team. Nobody likes to listen to a bullshitter. Nobody likes to listen to somebody who thinks that they have all of the answers. Being able to own it and say, I don't know. I think that it's your question is compelling or not compelling for X, Y, or Z reason. Uh, And then being able to say, I'm going to get back to you by this date with an answer. I mean, that's at the end of the day, what people want. They can't expect, you know, everybody to know the answer to everything. Being able to recognize your own shortcomings, you know, in in this case, an information one, um, and then holding yourself accountable to getting back to them. That's what people are looking for. The other thing that I like to do, particularly in those instances, is push the decision to the person. I mean, particularly if you, you don't know the answer, it's a great opportunity to flip it and be like, well, you know, what do you think? You know, I don't know, but what do you think? And then you allow them to feel empowered in, in the situation. And then you can always go look into it later. Let's, let's tug on the thread a little bit about turning the question back to the person who asked it. Because I, I think that that's such a salient point too, in, in just a, a good broader thing to consider when working with people is that people inherently like to talk about themselves. And the more that you can engage them in a creative solutioning process, the more that you can tee them up to sound smart or sound like they're the person that came up with the answer, you win at the end of the day. I mean, this kind of goes back to like your impact as a product manager is not your direct output. It is the output of everybody else that works for you directly or indirectly. So you should not be optimizing for I had the right answer, or I did X, Y, or Z. You should be optimizing for everybody who's working towards my common goal, you know, feels like they have the right answer and is doing X, Y, and Z. You've just now totally changed the equation here where somebody who felt like they were a contributor now feels like they are the driver of something. I I think that this is also just another really great core PM trade is focusing on the problem and trying to provide as much context to engineers or designers or whoever else you're working with of, you know, here's here's the problem that we're trying to solve. Here's why it's important. Here's some of the constraints that we need to play in, but then empower them to actually come up with the solution, maybe help them refine it. Or if it they're coming back with a set of solutions, help them narrow it down to one. But the more you can make them feel like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that one, that one that you you brought up, that's the one that we should run with. You know, they are going to be fired up to do so. And so, yeah, I, I think it just goes back. You know, getting getting people to feel like they are involved or they are driving the conversation or driving the decisions, you're just going to get so much more leverage out of people, and they're going to enjoy it a lot more. Totally. And I think a key to being able to do that 
is making sure that as a product manager, you bring something to the table that other people don't. Because back to that story, that Pete Parsons story, he was an amazing salesman. And, and he brought that to the table. He was bringing in awesome deals. And we had another leader who came in who didn't really have something that he really owned. And I could tell that he was holding on to that decision-making thing as his thing because he didn't have something else. And I think at Zynga, we were really trained to be super analytical, to do a lot of heavy lifting. And that allowed us to have confidence that if we deferred the decision to someone else, we weren't going to just get replaced because we were still needed. And when I left Zynga, I went to some other organizations, particularly outside of gaming, where the product managers, they didn't do a ton of that heavy lifting. They were somewhat project managers and somewhat decision makers. I felt like they held on to that decision making so much more because it, it almost felt like if they let go of that, they wouldn't be needed. I felt like that was a key part of it. You got to have your thing. You got to bring the analytics. You got to bring some heavy lifting to have kind of the confidence to be like, you know, yeah, what do you think? But going back to a little bit more uh, your ability to connect with people, I felt like you had a knack for it. Just like when I was talking to Justin, Justin had a knack for that authoritative leadership role in some ways. Like he just, he kind of like came in with that. You kind of came in with this ability to connect with people a little bit, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you learned it. I think the, I think you're giving me too much credit for coming in with it. You know, again, like, let's just go back to the scene here. You know, I'm I'm the associate producer who, you know, after running this PokerCon event, low Tony is like, all right, you're clearly in the wrong role. What do you want to do? And I'm like, I, I think that product management thing, because that's where people are calling uh, the shots. Yeah, it's pretty uh, obvious. Yeah. <laughs> and kudos to Michael Kane for saying, yeah, for sure. I'll support you in doing that. Now, you know, I, I look around the rest of the product management bench and I'm far and away the least qualified person who's there, right? Like no prior experience in product management, technology, anything technical, really don't know squat about gaming business, business generally, right? All right. Yeah. So, so now it's like a, okay, well, people are clearly spiking on different things here. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sitting across the table from Justin Wickett, who's doing all of these models on Excel without a mouse. I'm like, okay, well, if that guy's got a leg up, <laughs> you know, you come in, come in hot from, you know, a year off of Tuck, you know, with, I just remember you're like, your master deck of, of PowerPoint slides. Yeah. I remember the, the first presentation I ever showed, you pulled me aside and you're like, this is garbage. <laughs> I was like, okay, uh, helpful feedback. Uh, nobody's told me that before. I've never put together a deck. And you're, you're like, you're like, here's like 250 slides that you can pull from. Like, you know, the, the next six months, I'm going to be re reviewing all your decks. And thank you for doing that because uh, I learned a ton from that. But yeah, I think it really came down to, you know, everybody comes to the table with, a different skill set and different competency um, or different, you know, inclination towards you know, something or something else. I haven't been and probably will never be the most technical product manager. And if, frankly, that felt and it still at times feels a little bit awkward when you're like surrounded by a bunch of other very sharp computer scientists or ex-engineers of, you know, one type or another. That's not my thing. But relating to other people and understanding what make people tick is. And I, I figured that that was something that I had, especially as a, when I looked around the rest of the team, a comparative advantage to other PMs. And I figured, Hey, I think that, I think that this can be beneficial to me. And along the way, 
learn all of the other core product management skills, but try to try to tap into a lot of this. I'm I'm not totally sure how much I had developed that skill prior to the job, but I think just understanding that everybody is different and everybody responds to things differently. I, I, I somehow picked that up at an early age. You know, I, I actually do remember that I used to ask my dad, we'd be watching TV and we'd, I, I'd see an ad on TV and I'd be like, who do you think that that ad is marketed towards? And like, we'd have conversations around like what we thought the, you know, the target market of, you know, whatever CPG product was. Um, but it became pretty clear to me that everybody is different and everybody responds to a different message and a different motivation. And so then it kind of became a game to me. And I think that this was, this then fed into me understanding, you know, everybody's first name, last name, spouse, et cetera, was I wanted to understand what made people tick, like what got people excited, what got people up in the morning, why were they at this job? What did they want to get out of this job? And in each subsequent conversation, what I could, what I could test out was, let's say we've got this feature, we're trying to drive this result. Now, how do I market that? towards everybody, all eight individuals on this team in a way that is tailored to the thing that they care about and not bullshitting them. It's not like I made up information, but, you know, somebody who is the game designer is going to going to be excited about something different than the graphic designer, different than the front end person, different than the back end person, different than the analytics person. And the more that I could tailor each of those messages to the individuals, the more that I could see their eyes light up, they were connecting the dots, they were excited to work on it. And so that was just something where, yeah, I mean, but, you know, a lot of it as with everything in life is, is trial and error, but just figuring out, okay, how do I quickly tease out what people care about, you know, and, and try to message it in a way that, that resonates with them. The two words that I was stuck on when you said all that was comparative advantage, which I think is super spot on and, and pretty interesting to think about because you're right, it's not that you come in with the skill it's that you assess the room and said where do i have a comparative advantage and i was thinking of my own experience and we're talking about how i'm not personable or whatever and you know I, i'm gonna go against that because when i left professional hockey and i was 25 and i wanted to enter the working world i can remember thinking very similarly which is my resume is crap i've been playing hockey for 20 years right and i'm competing with people who went and got internships and they got jobs and whatever and where's my comparative advantage well i have a willingness to talk to people i have a willingness to ping random people i have a i'm just going to go email all these people in seattle and meet with them and talk to them and i'm going to build this network that they don't have and my comparative advantage is my willingness to do that and am i the best at it no but relative to the people i was competing with i felt like that was my comparative advantage and that's actually been kind of core to my starting my company as i feel like i'm relatively smart i'm relatively hardworking, but relative to the other people that fit in that in my that category so i get what you're saying it's like you came in and you weren't like i'm the best person at connecting with people but compared to brett maybe i am right and i think that's a really great way of looking at things when you want to be successful particularly in business it's not hey this is my strength because you could be going up against i mean i'm an analytical person too but when you're going up against justin wicket or michael kane it's like yo you're gonna get blown out of the water I think, and, yeah, I think, th I think that that's spot on both from a personal level. Like I, you know, I saw Justin Wright's sequel and I was like, okay, well that's, you know, I, I could try nights and weekends and I'm not going to get to that level. But I, th I just think that that's true in business as well. Like rarely do you want to enter, you know, a, a market 
and say, you know, I'm going to start just going head to head against the thing that my competitor is doing best at. Usually you want to figure out like, okay, I'm bringing something unique to the table. How can I use that as my wedge in either to an existing customer base or to a new segment of the market that's unserved? And then over time, you figure out how do I take that advantage and win more and more business away from my competitors. It's kind of interesting at Zynga that it was sort of like a competition between PMs, even though we were on the same team, that oh. you got to play around with these ideas and, and these concepts. It was totally a competition. I mean, and let's be clear, like, I think like most PMs, especially in that era, like that drove a lot of what we did and, you know, a lot of what we were motivated by. I'll first say, I thought that we had a, a great and very inclusive team culture, but I mean, Zynga, at least at that time, operated as a high-performing sports team and your performance was on display for everybody else on the team. We had a lot of different levels and bands within the product org and those were all visible to everybody. So if somebody moved from you know, senior to lead, you knew it. And if somebody released, you know, a, a grand slam of a feature, you knew it. And you knew that uh, the quarterly bonus period that that person was also getting rewarded handsomely for it. Again, like, you know, I, I come in here and I look at all of these other people and I'm like, my goal here is to be the best at what I do and to win this competition, you know, day in and day out. The, the other thing, though, I did want to highlight, which I think is super interesting, I, I haven't applied this to my own company, but I feel like in business, people shy away from competition because they think it's going to be too cutthroat. And when you listen, I'm sure when people listen to these stories about Zynga, they think, wow, must have been so cutthroat. And there was a certain amount of some, some of the cutthroatness, but I will tell you, like people were super team oriented. I mean, I can remember you being totally. doing like everything to help out other people and help other teams and oh we want you to check out this new thing so that we're going to do this for the company and like so and so needs it in the investigation we've talked about on other podcasts like how many investigations we have to do that wouldn't be specs it was very frowned upon if you were cutting corners i don't remember anybody cutting corners i don't remember any product manager cutting corners i don't remember thinking you know that person isn't like like he's not putting his hand up to do like the extra task i mean i think it's worth talking about the aspect of poor performance as well from a people standpoint because that I, I think that that doesn't get as much attention i mean so much of you know working with people is around how do you, how do you foster an environment where people thrive and you know you, you as a leader create the most leverage for you and part of doing that is also figuring out when you have the wrong fit with somebody on the team and it, those conversations are always more difficult than the ones where you're rewarding somebody um, because, you know, a job is, you know, both somebody's livelihood, but also, you know, in many ways, a, a big part of their identity, but ignoring poor performance, not doesn't just hurt the individual, you know, you need to be candid with them you know, more often than not. People really do want to keep getting better and improving but it also has a huge detrimental impact to the rest of your team. Chances are, if you think that somebody on your team is a poor performer, their peers probably think that they are an even worse performer than you think. Probably and probably picked up on that even earlier than you did. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the tough part of being in a leadership role is also knowing when to have the conversations of, you, know, you, of course, give candid feedback, try to help people self-correct, 
Um, but then also having the conversations of, you know, this team not being the right fit. Sometimes there's an option for another team within the company. And sometimes the better option is, you know, a team outside of that company. You know, for people who are looking to invest in people as a kind of crucial arrow in their product management quiver, identifying underperforming talent and figuring out how to triage it and deal with it and deal with it swiftly is one of the most crucial things that you can do. And there really isn't much of a playbook there. Poor performance or underperformance comes in a whole bunch of different flavors. And, you know, some people will know it. Some people will be in denial of it. You know, some people will want to work on improving it. Some people will think that you are an absolute idiot and how could you not see how great they are? But the worst thing that you can do is let it fester and not have those tough conversations early because the rest of your team uh, will suffer because of it. I, I have a ton of thoughts on this, actually. I've spent a ton of time on this for Liquid and Grit. So I think that unlocking a lot of this has to do with onboarding process. So what I realized was, actually, I've, I've learned this through therapy in just in life in general, is that we so often look at the problem that's in front of us, but it's it's usually like this root problem that's causing everything. And we think about the poor performance as a problem. To me, what was the real core problem was that your onboarding super expensive. Because if your onboarding super expensive, you're much more willing to work with a person who isn't a top performer to get them good because you realize that it's super costly to get another replacement. So if you have a, a good onboarding hiring process or an inexpensive one, an inexpensive effective one, then you're much less willing to deal with a lot of crap from a person. And so what I did to solve this problem was go and focus on the onboarding, hiring and finding process. And once I had that down so that it was super fast, super inexpensive, that allowed me to take the policy, which we have is it's either a hell yeah or a no. If it's a, if it's not a hell yeah, it's a no. So once we see one or two little things, it's like, that's it. And this isn't the right fit. And Again, it's because of that onboarding. And what I've learned it also is that those high performers aren't linearly better than a mid or low performer. They're exponentially better. They're 5X, 6X, 7X better than even the, the middle tier. So they're so worth it to wait for them. And so, well, yeah, we have a pretty you know no-nonsense attitude about that. And you're right. You're spot on. Man, the other people in the organization they love that because they're the high performers that are want to work with other high performers. And my philosophy is that it's my job to keep profit margins high. They can have a job for the rest of their life. And to protect profit margins, you have to have a very efficient, effective team. And when you decide to take on somebody who isn't strong, they cut into your profit margins because they cost relatively the same as a high performer. And yet their output is so much less. And so what you're actually doing by keeping them on is putting everyone else at risk, which isn't fair. And that's how I think about it when I say, hey, you're not working out. You're probably great somewhere else. You're actually really talented, but you're not a hell yeah. It's really to protect everyone else. There's nothing more detrimental and, and getting somebody out of an organization's a lot harder than than getting them in. I guess what I would add to what you have to say, I, I agree. I mean, there's no substitute for being super rigorous up front and being all in on whoever you do hire. You shouldn't be hiring lukewarm people. Investing in the hiring process is, you know, especially for people who will directly report to you, you know, the highest leverage thing that you can do. That said, product managers will find themselves in one of two situations. One, 
they screen and their team screens the candidate as best as they can. And you as a hiring manager are probably spending three to five hours tops with an individual before you make a hiring decision. And, you know, yeah, you've got your, your best people who are also grilling them on the, the things that matter. But at the end of the day, you know, your underwriting process for new candidates probably looks like less than 20 hours. And in a setting that is somewhat theoretical, you know, you, you of course do references, case studies, all of these sorts of things. But point being that you can have the tightest underwriting process for a candidate and the whole team can be a hell yeah. And yeah, I completely agree. And, and maybe they, that candidate is great, you know, three months in or six months in, or maybe even for a year. But inevitably, the nature of roles change over time. And sometimes you'll find yourself in a position where a candidate was a slam dunk for the thing that they initially did. And as the business evolves and as the team evolves, they're no longer a fit or, you know, whatever area of competency they're moving into is no longer their strong suit. And you'll find yourself in a situation there where you have to manage talent out. And the other, in particular for first-time managers, first-time managers largely, not always, but largely inherit a team. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm, thinking about, I'm thinking about you being promoted into lead and you know, inheriting both a, a team of uh, individuals that directly reported to you, but also a lot of people you know, in engineering, design, et cetera, that indirectly reported into you in, you know, in the revenue org. Um, and that's also a moment where you have to then take control of the, the team that you have and, and have tough conversations and make tough decisions. What you said earlier is, is really the key to handling that is every single person has got to be handled differently. I personally, in terms of the feedback or the development, I think humans and managers in general have an overconfidence in their ability to affect people. I generally feel like you get what you get. And there's a lot of managers fall in the trap of thinking that they have this amazing ability to change people, right? Like you're going to work on so many things. You're going to improve these so many things. My philosophy is more of work with what you have, right? Don't give them the risky project. Be super specific about what they need to do. Have everything written down. Double check halfway through. Do not go five days before you check in, right? I mean, have an extra meeting with them. Work with what you have and don't think that you're going to develop this person into, you know, the, the superstar. And I think sometimes product managers and managers in general think that they can. And I don't know, that's, that's another philosophy I kind of have here at Liquid and Grit. It's like, this is what they're going to be like, and that's fine. I'll, I'll challenge that a bit. So, <laughs> a, so a, I mean, there's, there's the saying of don't marry somebody expecting to change them. And I think that that also applies to, you know, don't hire somebody who's super creative and expect them to be, you know, your analytical superstar in a few years, right? Like right, yeah. you know, people are largely who they are. Their core competencies are, are who they are, et cetera. You know, that said, I've hired and I've had the good fortune to work with a lot of people who are earlier on in their career with tremendous potential. And you are able to help shape them and help them grow in a much more meaningful capacity than you know, the person that they were when they started as well. I think it comes down to identifying what is this person uniquely good at? What does this person really care about? And how can I be a catalyst or an enabler to helping them unlock that the next level of, of, of performance and, and outcomes? 
this was the second thing that I was going to say that you do really well. You're like a sage. You have this sage advice. I'll say these ridiculous things, these, these thoughts that I have, and you have an ability to just tell me that, that that's probably not true in a really nice way, but it's firm. Th- that's another talent of yours. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I feel like you're, you're like a wise sage when it comes to working world, you know, like you have these, this wisdom and an ability to say it to people. And I think that one of the things that you do well that I also focus on is trying to be objective. There is so much emotion in everyday life that then has an outsized influence over our decision making. Uh, I love reading about behavioral economics and all of the weird ways where we should be rational. And then you look at how we actually act and there's so much irrationality as a result of the way that we feel or the environment that we're in. And being cognizant of the context that you're in at the moment that you hear new information and being able to take a step back and say, huh, okay, I think that this is the thing that we're talking about and the thing that's actually important or the problem that we need to solve in the bits of information that I need to, you know, take into account. Just kind of taking that pause for a couple seconds has been very helpful for me in ensuring that when I respond back, I do so in a way that is focused on the problem and not the person or lays out a few different options and I can articulate the merits and detriments of them and engage somebody else in a conversation. But being able to just focus on the facts uh, and stay objective, I think leads to more productive conversations. And regardless of what role you're, you're in, you know, a direct report coming to you or a peer coming to you or an executive coming to you, a lot of those conversations are charged with emotion. Somebody feeling really excited about something, somebody feeling really disappointed in you, somebody feeling like you know, the business is on fire and being able to say, okay, let's, you know, let's try to decompose what's going on here and then just ask some clarifying questions, I think helps people stay centered and stay focused and ultimately you know, stay more productive. And I don't know, I think that skill is, has been described to me as, you know, being a sage or being a Zen master as one of my former reports once called me. And I, I think that, look, those are, are big compliments and I, I certainly value those. I think it's just anchoring and objectivity it helps with so many different facets of your life. I think it does for your own actions. I think that you can't get in trouble with it when you're when you're talking to someone because I've found because I, but I agree, you know, in general, I'm going to like spin it a little bit because what I've learned, the uh, the one big thing that I probably learned is it's so often not about the thing you're talking about. Particularly and I'm talking about relationships with my wife or or with people and with business, it's all the same, right? It's like what you're talking about is not the thing, right? They've got had a bad day. They've had too much coffee. They were out the night before. Their dog is sick, like, you know, and this thing happened, right? And they're talking to you and it's so easy to go, well, I don't really understand why you're saying this because this doesn't make any sense. And this is, you know, and it's like, like you said in the beginning, being empathetic, understanding that the person is a person, understanding that there's a lot that's going on in their life allows you to ideally detach from the situation a little bit and be like, okay, there's probably a lot more going on. But what I've found is to connect with them, the best thing to do isn't to stay objective, it's actually to get emotional. 
and not in a bad way, but to be with them emotionally. And that's hard for, I think people like to to meet them where they are, meet them exactly where they are. Don't stay in the objective. Like, well, you're talking about this fact and I'm think this fact is not right. It's, it's to be emotional back to them and say, Hey, I'm here with you. And that is hard to do. I mean, I think particularly for product managers who are trained to be analytical and let's just like talk about the funnel analysis, but uh, well, you can do it, man. It's incredibly powerful. I think even just laying some of those facts out on the table of like, look, I know that we've got a big presentation tomorrow. I know that, you know, not all of the data is coming in or, you know, something's hitting the fan right now. Like, let's just put that all out on the table. Like identify the situation that we're in right now. And, and then like actually play out, okay, what is the worst case scenario? Like, what is the worst outcome? Almost every time the worst outcome is benign in the grand scheme of things. Certainly in the grand scheme of life, you know, we're, we're talking about business results frequently on a, you know, micro scale here. Acknowledge it. Yeah, it sucks. It really does. I'm sure that you're feeling heartburn around it. I am too, frankly. Dwelling in that state and that panic is not going to help us move forward. Let's acknowledge it exists and we can, you know, both say, yeah, yeah, you know, we're, we're both pretty stressed about this, but let's figure out how we move forward and, you know, how I can help you in moving forward and who else we can tap in and moving forward. And I think, you know, that, that then meets the person where they are, shows that you're genuinely actively listening you're laying out the facts as you see them. So that gives them an opportunity to say, actually, you know, I'm also, this other thing is weighing on me too. Great. Brett, thanks for letting me know that. Let's also take that into account and then show up as their partner to say, okay, great. Let's, let's fix this thing. I think that that is a quality that I have observed in in my best managers and bet the best leaders that I've worked with and one that I try to emulate and bring to my own team. The active listening, that's another thing that I find super effective. Actually, I learned this through psychiatry. It's a form of psychiatry actually is, I think it's called motivational interviewing, but the key to it is that you basically ask questions and all you do, and this is actually hard to do, but all you do is try to understand the person. You do not think about the solution. You do not think about what you're going to say next. You do not think about anything. All you do is you sit there and try to understand the person. And that's how you end up being able to change them or influence them. And I think that's obviously an extreme, but I think that a lot of those values or techniques are pretty valuable in product management, where if you're talking to a developer or a designer, it's so easy to go, oh, I've got these five things I want to tell them. I got these three things I want to get across, right? And that's what I'm thinking about where they're talking. And they can sense that. I mean, us humans are, we've had enough conversation, we can sense these things. And they're not going to respond great when you throw those five things out because you didn't when listen you to them. swinging to a one-on-one yeah. and it's clear from the first second that this is their agenda, not mine anymore. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think people put up walls and are just like, okay, I thought, you know, this was going to be, you know, time for me or time for us. And it's clearly time for them. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And thanks again to Alden for coming on to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we can't wait to make more of them just like this for you. So until then, here's a little something to close us out.
You, Brett Novak, taught me the value of going belly to belly with people. I don't know if you still use this phrase, but I, I use it and I gotta say that my sales team absolutely loves it when I use it. Um, but there's so much value created in actually getting to know getting to know somebody, going by and seeing them, having a short conversation with them, going out of your way if you see them in a hallway. Most of these businesses rely on relationships. Really seeing people and making an investment, like don't just lob them in IM if you can actually go over and say, hey, here's how I'm thinking about this problem. Here's the thing that I'm trying to solve. Those little moments, makes such a big difference. And when you have more contentious conversations when you're not seeing eye to eye, going belly to belly and investing in a live conversation where you can actually talk things through, there is no substitute for that actual real live conversation.